this particular period is challenging us about what is what is the cost of individualism and what is the opportunity of community. Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, this is LaShawn and welcome to season one, episode one. That's right. Our first episode is finally here and we're excited to get going. During this first season, we will be talking with an amazing group of people, and I hope you enjoy our journey as we talk to people about their journey. And that's what the show is about, learning more about today through past stories from amazing people. Today, we're speaking with Denise Perry, a union organizer and trainer. We're going to talk about three things, how she got started organizing as a child, some of the history behind organizing as a tool to fight racial inequality, and how she's now using her toolkit to train others to improve the world. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Let's get to it. Denise, how are you? I'm doing good, LaShawn. How about yourself? I'm fantastic. Here in Seattle, sheltering in place and ready to get into this conversation. Now, you're a union organizer and trainer. Uh, You spend your time training and equipping people to dismantle racial inequality. I wanted to talk about a number of things, but first off, you live in Miami these days, and I believe you're born in Boston. Is that correct? That is correct. So let's go back briefly to your childhood. So what was it like growing up in your household? I have no complaints. I guess I could start with that. And my parents were very adventurous. They were in Boston in the 50s. And when my father graduated from the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and could not get a job as a black man working in healthcare, they packed us up and moved to California with no job, no place to live, know anything other than my grandfather picking them up at the airport and asking them where they wanted to go. Wow. My dad, he did get a job as a pharmacist in a couple different places and got involved in the union by standing up for himself and asking a lot of questions. And yeah, that's been our journey. That was sort of the kickoff of the journey. And 59 years later, here I am. During that time, your father introduced you to labor unions, you know, the the fight for equity and caring for workers. What was one of the more pivotal moments that you can recall that helped shape your interest in how you might look at this as a career? Yeah, I would say there were several things. Um, One was just always an orientation in our house about the care and concern for working people understanding what boycotts were about and why we don't cross picket lines. Um, On our refrigerator, we had a list of things that you should boycott that was just a part of life. I recall um, the grape boycott uh, for the United Farm Workers, and that just was standard. And I did have an experience of going with a friend to clean someone's house, and the woman at the end when we finished, said she wasn't satisfied with what we did. And I was furious and said, there is no way I'd be disrespected. She wasn't cleaning the damn bathroom. Therefore, (laughs) I didn't understand her point. And from that point on, I was like, I would never disrespect the work of people without conversation, without understanding. And I feel like that's what labor does. Labor is here to give workers a voice in the conditions of their job, how they're treated, how much they get paid, and is a a major source of power in this country when when organized well. As you talk about those, uh, those types of experiences, was that in California or had you guys moved to another place at that point? Yes, we had come back to the East Coast at that So we moved back to the East Coast in the early 70s, 74. Through those experiences beyond your household, how did these ideas that you started to pull together, how did that impact both who you wanted to hang out with and the type of conversations you had? Exactly. I will make one note, and that is school and the education Mm -hmm. in our schools. And I remember distinctively sitting in class, a history class, when they talked about labor unions, the only thing they talked about were strikes and bad things happening. 
And I remember really trying to sit with that and be like, that's not what's happening though. That's not how I understand this. And I didn't actually have the voice yet at that point, but I knew that that description and what they were sharing with us was wrong. And that stayed with me until I was able to then say, this is something I can do is to step up and let my friends know that unions are a good thing. They're an important thing. They are what is allowing me to live here, be in this school and have these opportunities. And that comes from hardworking people. A lot of folks, including myself, we hear some of those things you called out. And frankly, we don't fully understand really how a labor union actually works. And so I think it's helpful to maybe start there. If you could kind of highlight some of the more structural pieces on how does a labor union work? Sure. The real down and dirty is employees at any job have the right to organize amongst themselves because they feel as though maybe they're not getting paid fairly, the conditions could be better, or they just want to have a voice and be a part of making the decisions for fair wages and working conditions. They have to then submit a petition to vote or to be recognized as a union. If they have to vote, um, then it's a 50% plus one of all the people who work there. Mind you, there are, depending on the industry, things about who the supervisors are, et cetera, would be excluded. But for the most part, the working people then decide through a vote. And then at that point, when they win the vote, 50% plus one, they have the opportunity to negotiate with their employer a contract that secures their health care, their, uh, all their benefits, their wages, and the conditions of which they work in. What's the entity that kind of facilitates or manages the paperwork that governs the labor union? Is it, you know, city, state, federal, something else? So the National Labor Board, the National Labor Relations Board is the governmental system that manages it, that approves the victory, that sets and makes the agreement that this contract is a binding agreement between these parties. And of course, as we know, people are going to break the rules And so they have hearings, they use arbitrators, all these mediators in order to make decisions to ensure the fairness. It's not always perfect by any stretch. I can name, you know, there are many corporations that are violators that terminate people because you have the right to organize in most sectors, but there are times where the employer is like, what? They're trying to form a union here, fire them. And so you sit in court trying to get justice because you do have the right. An interesting thing about the right to to participate in the union is that domestic workers and farm workers were locked out from the labor laws that protect workers' right to organize. And what's interesting about that is its relationship to race, because in Mm -hmm. the time that that happened was the period of which domestic workers and farm workers were black people. These are federal laws? Federal laws. And so that then um, still today, right, there was a huge fight to get domestic workers state by state that the National Domestic Workers Alliance has been working on in order for them to have the right to negotiate with their employers. There's also the piece of, right, like oftentimes these folks are working for individuals, especially in the domestic worker front. There are now pools of domestic worker companies, things like that. But for the most part, you're negotiating one-on-one with an employer. And if we look in those fields, there's a lot of abuse. We see that with a farm worker community. We see that in domestic workers, sort of work that's done almost sort of in the dark, so to speak, right? When you close the door, no one knows. No one's driving past the farmlands where all these folks are horribly and being poisoned by their employers. So as we think about the relationship between the worker and the employee, let's say there's plenty of work to still be done there, but is the actual legal construct that would facilitate that? Do you think that's in the right place now when you 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 talked about like farmers and certain classes being excluded or does that need work as well? We are not completed when the struggle for working people to be fairly and equitably represented in this country. Just so I'm using the vocabulary correctly, if I think about a farm worker, I think about a teacher, a police officer, 
those all seem to be similarly related. If I think about professional athletes or software engineers, is it the same construct on how they would all organize? Are there some differences in how I would think about those different populations? No, it's this. It's the same construct, the same pattern. Okay. Now, you worked at a number of places, including the International Union of Food and Commercial Workers. And I thought that's worth calling out because sometimes when we make these things less abstract, it's like, all right, let's talk about the, the real challenges. What were the demands? What were the things that needed to be negotiated? So in that particular union, what was the charter and what type of work was top of mind? Right. You pick the most complicated one. <laughs> Um, And that is because the United Food and Commercial Workers is an amalgamation of several different unions. As, you know, the 80s hit and unions were being beat up by Ronald Reagan and everything in their power to attack and break down unions, right, because that is a sense of power of working people, many unions began to sort of cobble and bring themselves together and coordinate to create an amalgamation of unions. And so the United Food and Commercial Workers Union is made up of healthcare workers, furriers, meat cutters, boot and shoe workers. There's many unions that were small and struggling that came together and built what became the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. So I, in that union, worked to organize healthcare workers. I also want to take a little step back when you were naming the different workers and asking about their process for them to become union members. I just want to highlight the police union is something that is a growing divide of what's happening in the country right now around police violence. And so I wanted to just be explicit that the police are really an arm of the state and really not workers. They are, they are folks who are defending buildings, the infrastructure, so to speak, of the state. And there's just a lot going on about how the union is defending some really horrible practices. I mean, give me a couple just, you know, top of mind that, that uh, are worth sharing. So, I mean, we can say that when the police were convicted or when the police were brought under investigation in some of these locations, the police union was saying, no, they shouldn't be investigated we're taking care of this, et cetera. So building a wall of protection for the behavior of these police. And the problem with that is you do wrong, you have to be investigated and there has to be a process. And for them to be able to say that they are free from an, any sort of outside investigation, they are free from Uh, you know, like they can still collect their benefits, even if they are convicted. I mean, these things just make a mockery of the, of a system to protect people and to ensure a quality of life. So I just think this is a really hot conversation in the labor movement right now is about how the police union is using its power to protect really horrific, deadly deadly behavior. When we get to kind of unpacking how these or that type of union created that much leverage, is it in the contract negotiation? What's the reason that that's uh, you know perpetuated? That's a really good question. I've never read a police union contract, but I feel pretty confident that whether the it's listed in the contract itself or not, that because police are a part of the state, union or no union, they were going to get protection. I mean, we hear that from the president of the United States. Yeah. They are okay with this. We hear that from how people are described as you're protecting us and they are looting. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the language, the structure of this country is set up to allow that kind of thing to happen. And that's a problem. That's that's a part of where we are right now that has to be that has to be addressed. And these types of contracts, not specific to police unions, but in general, are they typically annually um, negotiated multi-year or it kind of varies? Yeah, it varies. I mean, so you can get, you know, a contract that is so, for example, in the grocery industry in California, 
several of the local unions uh, organize together to have what they call a master agreement. So no matter whether you work at Alpha Beta or Albertsons or whatever, it's a mass contract to ensure sort of equity across the, the industry. So those are industry contracts. So there's a variety of different ways that folks have been able to organize and create contracts that, that are strong that allow a respectable salary. And then you have, you know, public sector employees and there's a lot of variety and it basically comes from what is the power of the people in this industry, in this location? You know, you use the word power, which is, uh, I think, uh, you know, important piece to understand where there is an imbalance of that power many times. When you think about certain communities that you know, it seems like unions have a lot of influence, good or bad, and then others where it's muted or non-existent. What's the impetus for that? Why are certain organizations and working populations so well organized and in some cases doing a great job for their constituents and others like doing such a, a bad job? What are the dynamics that drive that? Is it purely capital and is it a dollar thing? Is it other historic systemic type things? Like like how should I think about the drivers on what you know kind of creates these environments? Yes, I would say that it is about capital. You know, we hear these corporations that talk about how much money they made and actually, did you make the money or did you make the money off the work of these people? Mm. (laughs) And that is more of the truth of the matter. And so it's as organized as the people are able to organize themselves, right? There's, there are law firms that their specialty is how to beat the union. Wow. And there are, yeah, so there are like, uh, it's a whole industry about how to fight the union. So if the union's going to cost me $10 million and this law firm's going to charge me a million, I should go cut the check to the, the law firm is how they're thinking. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So they intimidate, uh, you know, all it takes is firing one person. If I'm a, a parent and I've got two kids at home to feed Am I going to take the risk of getting involved and losing my job to secure my job? Or do I just say, look, y'all do what you're going to do. I'm going to not be in this. Right. So that's a broken link. You had mentioned, you know, kind of this anchor of power and you also had referenced Reagan. I want to kind of move to the topic of uh, neoliberalism. And I know that the negative impacts of that ideology is, you know, one of the reasons we need and want to protect workers. Can you break down what that is for folks who maybe don't have the right definition of that word and maybe also kind of share why that exploded during the Reagan administration in the 80s? Right. So it's actually a rebirth of an ideology from time before. And I think if we want to understand anything, it is important for us to no history. Mm-hmm. And the neoliberalism is the privatization of everything. The the winner take all, if you need social services or whatever, you're considered sort of like the pariah of the state because you're taking and forcing them to increase taxes on the wealthy to pay for, you know, food housing and neoliberalism says it's about the market. It's about making money and it's about, you know, who's going to be the strongest and the, we don't need regulation from the state to give us guidance to protect the environment. We don't need it to protect your life. We just, we don't need it to protect anything. We deregulate everything. So it's all about how much money can I make? and how many, how few of us are going to take control. So I don't necessarily want the industry to be made up of 50 different corporations. I want it to be me. Right. We will consolidate to, to it being about me. And then I dictate to the state what I need and what I want. So, I mean, we know that, you know, that breeds things like, uh, you know, oligarchies and other dysfunctional economic bases where you have too much consolidated power. But let's role play a little bit. Um, So I'm going to take the counter because 
without the extra context, as you're calling, you know, as you're describing that structure, it feels somewhat innocuous, right? It's like, okay, the customers will likely get the best products if we we let this happen. Now we know that's not the case. So so let's flip it. And I'm gonna say, well, Denise, that sounds fantastic. Why why shouldn't we do that? Well, you know, if we want to just be in the battle about the price of the product, then we haven't taken into any consideration the makeup of getting that product to you. Mm. The product doesn't just come out of the ether. The product actually is a process to get to you. And so like we want to know history, we want to know these things. What is in that product? How did it get to you? Who made it? Where did they mine those minerals from in order to make that cell phone? How many children had to work to put that product together to get it to the, to the sales store? And then what was the battle inside of the stores to get you the best price? So, so Denise, that sounds smart. I'm still in my role playing uh, mode here, um, but I don't know how to do that calculation. Like, where am I going to get this information if, if the people making the products don't tell me? Yes, that is a wonderful question and an important question that we all need to be asking. And we can start by engaging in talking with other people who might be involved in organizing, who might understand, um, who might be doing work around climate and can let us know about one use products and what the impacts are. Like we can expand ourselves to think past the commercial on television selling you that product. Like right. we are a smart society and critical thinking is part of our responsibility to being engaged. Hmm. I mean, in addition to the obvious conditioning that folks uh, are impacted by from, you know, media and communications and messaging, what do you think is the reason so many people, I'll put aside the folks who actually run these companies and benefit from, you know, this type of consolidation, but, but those folks aside, the general population, many of which who are negatively impacted by this, but still supporting these ideals, like, like it just, it seems illogical to me. What do you think it is that has, you know, many folks thinking this is the ideology I, I should support, even though it's against their best interest? Yep. Starts in school. Hmm. If you talk to young people who are in school and asking them about what they're learning, about how they're taught in school, what's the process? And we start very young with the indoctrination um, of individualism. We're competing against each other. We're not trying to get all A's, right? Like we're not trying to move the whole class. I need for just LaShawn to be the A student. We are creating and the United States does an amazing job, right? It's like, um, I'm going to reward you um, if you buy this product because you're going to be so beautiful and everyone's going to want to be with you. And I'm going to reward you for going to Target and buying that product that's wrapped in five tons of plastic because it's the best thing out there and no right. one's going to have it but you. So we are so overwhelmed with a judgment on our choices that tells us and rewards us for the good things, which are not good, (laughs) but will reward us for the direction that they want us to go in. And so in some ways we become almost like sheep and not, and not because I don't believe that people with the information would always keep making the same decisions. And we see that with what, what's happening right now. Everyone's told the police are good and they're going to be here to protect you and save you. And you call them if you need something. And people are questioning and doubting that because they're actually opening up to the idea that there's another perspective. And so people are going to choose, hopefully more than not, but choose when they see what the options are. Well, it's also interesting when you bring that up, I think for many some of these questions don't just challenge whether someone should support a cause, become an ally or, or what have you, but it's, it's causing them to reshape some of their belief system. And that is like, not, it's not just uncomfortable. That's like deeply unsettling. And so even if you recognize and acknowledge there's something wrong, you still may say, 
Well, if that requires me to restructure my belief system, uh, I might just opt out of that. So I get the education piece is, is so important, both our history, understanding these dynamics and uh, the mindset to be able to really allow ourselves to change. You mentioned something that I thought of uh, a recent uh, conversation I had, a woman, she's from China, and she was talking about some of the recent events on uh, racial inequality in America. And she said something that just really struck me um, as obvious once she said it, but it didn't feel as crisp until I heard her say this. And she said, not only was she not aware of a lot of the issues of racial inequality in America, but she said that the bulk of her assumptions were shaped by what she's watched in movies and television. Yes. She said, well, that's just how I thought everything was. The fact that both one, you know, obviously media has this extreme power, but two, that that was enough, right? That was enough of the data set to say, all right, now, now I figured that part out. And, you know, she says she's now going through this reawakening to kind of understand and go and double check what other things that are these baked in assumptions that have really shaped the way she's thinking and, and led to her being inactive, you know, in previous iterations of these conversations. So I, I wanted to talk about or just hear your thoughts on maybe why this is so pervasive globally, right? I mean, you know, we go back to the 80s. Obviously, Reagan was promoting this. There was other folks such as in Britain, you know, Margaret Thatcher was was pushing this type of ideology. What do you think it was that took these ideas that had come from decades before to kind of have this resurgence in the 80s? And largely, you know, many people still believing this this is the way we should drive markets. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say that I, I don't, deeply understand the answer to that. I mean, what was the opening that allowed this to happen? I'm sure there are many historical pieces that happened at the time. We have battle with apartheid in South Africa. We had gas crisis. Like there were all these different things, right? So oil, a lot of different shifts at the time. I'm not that well-versed to say I, I have an answer to, to what was it specifically other than an opportunity. I mean, and it's trippy because Ronald Reagan was in the union. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is a fantastic insight. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what kind of member he was and whatever, but he was in California. And if there's a contract, everyone's in, you don't get to opt out, which is a law that we've also had to deal with. So I, I don't really have a, a solid answer for that question. Yeah. It's uh Definitely something for more discussion, but yeah, it's fascinating how pervasive it seemed to have spread. I mean, obviously for the the folks who are promoting this, it was working for them. So yeah. people want to kind of replicate things, even if they're unjust. And I think the globalization of the work, right? So like the technology ah, yeah. building the access for internationalism to not just be about the progress of the ability to connect with people, but sort of like, how do we take advantage of that, right? So like, yeah. it allows us to then control the world around trade and what that will mean and what's that impact, right? So it, it gave the United States just a higher stand of power and, and control. And we saw that with the NAFTA and all these things that then began to like shift where corporations were going to be the multinationals were going to land to take yep. advantage of a weaker coordination of the residents or the hunger, the thirst. You know, I'm like, people talk about everyone coming to the United States. I mean, people don't leave home if they don't have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a little bit of a false narrative about yeah. people dying to come to the United States. Maybe they're dying to come on vacation, but... <laughs> Neoliberalism has, uh, you know, become, you know, more of a pejorative term. And a lot of times people look at it as a negative. Right. And so it's been recoded or, or re messaged as, you know, many things, free markets, what have you. But regardless of what we call it, what do you think is the better alternative ideology that you like to see in the world? I believe we need some 21st century socialism where we become. And I think this particular period is challenging us about what is what is the cost of individualism and what is the opportunity of community? And so we see like the most beautiful mutual aid happening in this country in this moment with COVID and folks being out of work and needing masks and healthcare workers needing support and 
what is the we that people have pivoted into in order to to be there and to hold a different orientation for for life mm. and the individualism right so like just the other day in Palm Beach County here in in Florida people are getting on the microphone at their county commission angry that the county instilled a must wear a mask in public. Uh, yeah, I saw a bit of that coverage. And so they're saying that's a violation of their rights. Mm, is it a violation of your rights or did you fight this hard about seatbelts? You know, you wear a helmet, you put a helmet on your kid. We don't smoke in public places. Like where's the we in, in that? And the mask isn't about hurting you. It's about protecting someone who's standing uh, on you. That should be a t-shirt, right? Where is the we? <laughs> uh, because that's a really powerful question. Well, why do you think for many folks, uh, and again, maybe this is education and, and, and media conditioning, but many times the word socialism is paired with communism. And then folks point to you know, a number of these communist leaders who did an awful job running their country. So they're like, look, Maybe capitalism as, and I know even that's a generic word um, that people are going to use to code what we're really living in, but maybe the the world we have is better than those options because look how bad those turned out. So how do we decouple folks from understanding what those two words are? So all that baggage and, and in many cases warranted negativity around past communist regimes doesn't get bundled with some of the modern concepts of socialism. Yeah. So this is like two things, right? This goes back to what are we teaching them in school, um, mm. right? So like these subjects are barely even touched in grade school education. So that, and I know when I was working for the union, there was a lot of work towards labor getting involved in creating curriculum for schools mm -hmm. um, so that we could actually get the right kind of information in their hands. And there's a whole politic about who writes the textbooks, and what is their belief in the kinds of systems we should be in and how that influences what ends up getting taught in school. The other piece is, I think, you know, language is powerful. And I think when people see and understand and participate in a mutual aid process, how good folks feel and not in a benevolent way. I don't, I don't just mean that because I, I think that's something a little bit different right? It always feels good to do for someone else. But in the mutual aid, it's that it's a mutual process, right? So like, I can go and let you know what everyone in this neighborhood needs. And so we come back and work on it together. I think if we can use this moment to pivot into that being our understanding of what is the future that we want to hold. And yeah, the language around socialism around communism is going to take people a while to to catch up into. And no one wants to go to something that didn't work, but it doesn't mean you throw it away, right? It means here was the ideal. What were the pieces that didn't work and how do we keep moving forward? And that's why I said a 21st century socialism doesn't mean we're going to go back to all the, all the trials that, that failed or that got disrupted, right? So that's the other side of it is like, what was the true story about what happened? Mm. Right. So like the United right. States is going to cut off Cuba from any sort of aid. Mm, is that actually helpful or is that create a condition that that almost makes it impossible for people to succeed in the transition? Right. We're talking about transformation. How do you go from a dictatorship to socialism without a period to really help you make that transformation? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just to, we need to be more fair about how we're making these assessments about what's good and bad. Sometimes the, the pushback I hear on a number of topics, including this one, is, look, we're already so overloaded in our curriculum. Like, where would we slot this in? How would we fund it? Uh, and, and I guess I have a, a more of a simple question. These ideas seem like, uh, you know, I like to use the metaphor of, you know, how do you have your your best body? Mostly you, you know, you have to have the right mentality, but you eat right and you work out like the, the strategy isn't complicated. It's just it takes work to go execute it and you got to do it on a daily basis. When I hear some of these ideas, you know, I don't know that I need to put students through like a semester long class. You know, I, I think about like the, the pamphlet of yesterday to me is today's TikTok video. 
here's 60 seconds of information. And yes, you might need to repeat it multiple times. But do, do you think some of these things could be distilled down into, you know, the equivalent of a handful of TikTok videos where people just need to get exposure? And that's maybe a way to, to scale this more broadly? Yeah, I think of, I mean, look, we did the, you remember the give a hoot, don't pollute. Oh, yeah. It's a campaign. Yep. You can run all kinds of campaigns for, you're right, changing habits. Throwing their trash out the car window is nothing more than just a, oh, I whatever, throw it out until the campaign came and sort of like showed you this is the impact of that trash going out the window. Here's a trash can of what you can do with it. Here are all the options. I think the same, I think we're going to see that around COVID with the mass. Here in Miami, they, they identified three neighborhoods that the rates were really, really high. So the county pulled together a team of folks who go out and door to door are doing a education and giving them the supplies that they need. Because some of it is we're trying to create equity in a society that is so deeply unequitable, that is actually worse than unequitable. It's in some cases, I would say it's murderous, right? Like you knowingly are denying people fresh food, health care. That's killing people. That is not just being like, I got mine, you go get yours, when that's not possible. I see what Donald Trump is doing is actually killing people. And, mm -hmm. and that is something that we need to talk about. We can't just watch a whole part of our society dropping dead because you got yours and you don't respect, you know, it's sort of like we can just- yeah, the, 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 the tricky part about that, while I agree with that position is back to your point on language being important, I think part of the divisiveness that has been uh, pushed is when you say the word our society, who people believe is in that bundle. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And this is another historical context, right? Black people are less than white people. And that mm. has been the trope since we got here. Yeah. Three fifths. I read a quote from Chris Hedges. It said that fascist movements built their base not on the politically active, but the politically inactive. Do you think that resonates with you? You know, is it one of those things that we have to remind ourselves to like, the system's not just going to sort itself out for us. We have to take some action. Yeah, we have to engage. We have to yeah. engage. And, you know, I think we, just, everybody knows that, what they choose to do with that. I don't know, but it's like the voting is the sort of bare minimum that is held as like, to call this a democracy, you need to participate. I like that positioning, like voting is the bare minimum. Like you're making some t-shirts here. <laughs> where, where's the we? And uh, voting is the bare minimum. That's the least you can do. And, th and then the next one up from that is to actually know something about the people you're voting for. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think those are two separate things. People yeah. go and vote because a name crossed their doorstep or because it fell in the category of political, their choice of being a Democrat or Republican. It doesn't mean they really know much about the person. You know, here in my area and I think in most regions, there's this old school printed voters guide that goes out for, you know, all elections, you know, special districts, uh, city, county, state, federal. And, you know, it'll have here are the two candidates. Here's the opposing and opposing position on this proposition, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when I was younger, I definitely was just like, what is that? Right. And then as I got older, I started to read it and I still didn't necessarily have the tools to kind of parse out like I'm reading this language. They both sound like they're saying the right thing. But, you know, I didn't I didn't have the framework. And increasingly, it's obvious how much of a broader or bigger impact you can have on your local elections simply because there are fewer of you voting. Right. So your vote has a bigger percentage of the overall outcome. And so I guess my question is, when we talk about voting, a lot of times it kind of gravitates to national elections. Right. And people think about their senator or president. Why do you think so much of the local elections are not part of that narrative? Yeah, this is uh, what's worth my time, mm. right? And so if it's not bothering me, it's not worth my time. Yeah. 
And uh, that's sad, but it's true. And so maybe that's why folks have to organize to make people understand either you don't understand this is impacting you or we're going to make it impact you. So you have to pay attention. Exactly. When we tie that to some of the the topical moments, some of the reactions we've seen nationally, even globally uh, with the death of George Floyd, it's galvanized a lot of folks. What do you think is the the reason? Is it, you know, I've heard all sorts of, of ideas, you know, like people get more introspective and thoughtful when they're sheltering in place. The video evidence was so undeniable. Like, like what do you think is the reason why this moment seems different? Yeah, so I wouldn't disagree with those things, but I would also say that We've been in the streets organizing for many, many years, right? And organizing has its ebbs and flows. I think when we look at the look back, the Trayvon Martin piece was a a big up in participation and engagement and people's frustration. So I would say, first off, that organizations have been out here organizing, talking to people. And I think another piece of it is that there is a limit and people have not been doing great. They have not been doing well financially, right? We had a housing crisis. People are struggling for employment, the housing crisis of, I can't afford the rent, public housing that has closing down public housing, that getting into public housing is go buy a house and Mm. a first time home buyer, you know, education with police and schools and kids, young black girls being one of the highest of being expelled from school. I think people are just done, right? Like the power of this neoliberalism and its impacts on community, the squeeze is so hard that people are just done. That's like, I need to know that there's some other way. And so I just need to bust out of this and engage. Yeah. And, and there are organizations that are there with open arms to bring people in and try and help steer and facilitate what is the path to what we want. I just think this is it. People are exhausted and struggling. Now, when we look at those dynamics, which all are logical, they make sense. There are still many people, sometimes in those same communities, but, but definitely, um, you know, on the outside as well that really have a hard time trying to balance that we. And so, you know, I guess, why do you think it's so hard for so many people to focus on community over their own individualism? We are trained. We are trained, right? You can actually separate yourself from being with other people just functionally. I can work from home. I can, you know, go to my grocery store where I see people who are more like me than not. I can, right, so like people can isolate themselves in their little pockets of happy, happy, joy, joy, where they don't have to engage or be a part of other communities that exist. Mm. So when those videos come out and show you, oh, whoa, wait a minute, that happened, what? Right, so something to like bust the little bubble of where folks are at. I think if we look at a challenge of the number of college graduates who are inundated with debt begins to cross some of the class divide in in what's happening, right? So it's like, okay, maybe I couldn't even afford to go to school at all. There's that group and that's a problem. Why are we in the wealthiest nation in the world and we can't educate people to the highest level of what? That's in service to our best interest. I'm not sure I understand that. And so then those who can get in, but then take loans and now they're buried. So there are some of these issues that cross a little bit of the class line that is helpful in bringing more people into awareness. I think the gentrification is impacting a broad range of communities of working class people. So this is, we're not in a good place. Donald Trump has not brought us to anything better in the last four years. Absolutely worse. And this is the, this is the. Yeah, the catalyst that's kind of kicking it. When, when you think about folks who, and this is a hypocritical position, who are 
promoting both individualism and protectionism, right? They're just like, hey, you know, we got to make America first. But then once you get inside that population, it's every person for themselves. The logic doesn't hold up. Why why do you think, again, I keep coming back to something I've already asked you, but I just want to repeat this question. Why do you think that that statement, which is so, it feels so obvious that if we all try to make the collective of us as successful, as educated, as you know, secure as possible, that we would be a stronger competitive force and that would lift all boats. Where the scarcity, there has to be some type of loser. Why do you think that is something that people so deeply believe? Right. It doesn't seem logical to me either. And, you know, I, I think this country cannot get it together until we can reconcile the racism that is the driver of so much that happens. You can't have capitalism without having a race issue because it requires an underclass in order to succeed, right? I need a workforce to do all these things so that I can make all this money and do my thing. And, you know, and I say that in race and I also include, because I don't think we're always very articulate around naming Native Americans as a part of that struggle, that we sit on the, the, the land, the life of an entire nation and degrade it for our own benefits, right? And I'm saying our, not me, not what I believe, but our and the greater of the United yeah. States. And I think we need to get real with that. You know, we if people look at life on a reservation, uh, I'm sorry, it's painful to imagine that we have put an entire community of or an entire race of people and delegated them to, you know, here's your little piece. And now we're going to tear apart the rest of this. And so, so those are just the insidious, very critical components that have to be addressed that I think what's happening right now is forcing that conversation for people to talk about that a white police officer can hold his knee on the neck of another human being, a black man for eight and a half minutes until the man dies. What kind of person is that? And what kind of system supports and encourages that behavior? Mm -hmm. It's beyond my comprehension. And if we know the history of the police, the police were created to protect property and to catch slaves. That is the root of who a police officer is. What's a great resource, whether it's a book or or some other resource that folks can go to to get a better understanding of uh, the history on those points? I know a person more than I can put a name to a book. Maybe we can put a, uh, something in the show notes to, to share with folks to, to follow up on that, because these are great things that it's great to expose people to the topics. I always like to call back to some type of source. That's so right. when I, people repeat these, um, they don't get you know thrown off as offhand comments because they don't have uh, any data to back it up. Absolutely. I deeply appreciate that because I think that is critical. And I keep saying history, it's you know, I don't know all of it, but I do know that there are places we should be reading and studying. And, you know, that's the beauty of being an organization. So I was a union organizer, but that was one part of it. I've done organizing and community around different issues for the last 30 years. And being in community like that of an organization is such an amazing, beautiful opportunity for people to study together to learn and to strategize about where they're going, to understand what kind of, like they're creating a community in of itself inside of those organizations. And so I would encourage anyone, like that is an opportunity that is in front of you. There are local organizations all over that focus on housing, that focus on education, that focus on climate, that focus on LGBTQI rights, like there are organizations that could speak to something you may be passionate about that can afford you the space to be in that kind of study or to say, hey, y'all, I was listening to LaShawn and he mentioned this book. Why don't we all read it and see what we come to? Yeah, uh, that's excellent. Now, 
you're calling out something that's really important and all of this is empowering others. In the, the late 80s, you worked at the Organizing Institute and you were training college students and young people to become union organizers. What, what sparked that interest to start training others sharing this knowledge? Yeah, I believe that if we're going to win a shift in the governance of this country, everyone needs to get involved. And I am an excited organizer. I love meeting and getting to know people. And the idea of bringing in a whole new cadre of folks to, to do this organizing work, I was elated. And then the opportunity, I was invited to do this work as the Organizing Institute, and I jumped on it. And I don't regret it. It was one of the most enriching experiences because we had the opportunity to learn from people in their actual work and to like be a part of their life and learn about what's happening and to be a part of the strategizing on how can we change that and make it better for them. That makes it better for all of us. And so that was that was the impetus. And to be on black college campuses and do that recruitment was amazing and heartbreaking in some ways, right? Because for most of those young people, they were the first person in their family to go to college. Mm -hmm. So of course their parents were like, you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a lawyer and have big ideas and hopes for their kid. And the kid's like, I want to be a organizer. Wasn't always real popular, (laughs) (laughs) but it was, it was just really beautiful to see that in spite of a path that they had made their minds up to be, there was this work that was also equally important to them that they had the opportunity. We got labor union lawyers out of the experience and a lot of other, you know, brilliant researchers as well as organizers. We talked a a bit about some of the things, dynamics and context, largely in in North America. You've done work at other organizations such as the uh, Women's Global Equity Project, and that's taking you through not just the Caribbeans, but multiple countries in Africa, training, you know, women labor activists. What does success look like in those areas that may be different, if at all, in in some of the work you've done in the U.S.? It it wasn't different. I think the different thing was my opportunity for growth to understand working people around the globe, to understand some of the issues facing folks in other countries, and to be super clear that the U.S. may have a lot of power, but we certainly are not the smartest people at all. And I will say one thing for certain, in some of the places, many of the places that we went to, the union contracts, the union organizing was much more sophisticated than here. So Mm. one detail specific was about women's uh, right in their contract to have time off to breastfeed their children. Mm -hmm. The United States did not have that in our contracts. Those women were able to win in their contract the right to go home and take care of their child. They had much better parental leave policies and all of that much more of a we society than than us, like a very different orientation to family, um, to community that I think are just really large cultural differences when the United States culture is about the I, me, how much can I make? And, you know, like that is more important. Amilcar Cabral talks about culture as as the weapon when he organized Cabo Verde into the revolution of being independent from Portugal, the the victory came through culture. He believed that once you know who you are as a people, how you function as a people, we build a rhythm that allows us to be able to move and grow and be free. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's the lesson that we are in here in the U.S. is like, how do we understand our culture and really starting to to embrace that. Yeah, take some action. You you, you did uh, some work here in the U.S. in Miami, a historically black community uh, called Overtown, and you were helping the black working class, you know, really embrace their political power and become politicized. What do you think, you know, as you look at the lessons learned from that type of investment and that type of work that folks need to take away as they're trying to scale those types of efforts to other communities? A lot of what we did was copying what other organizations have done, quite honestly. And so 
Ella Baker and SNCC and what does it mean to build the intellectual of our community to be able to govern um, our community. Those were the kinds of things that we did that doesn't feel, mm, it wasn't new. And there are many, many of those organizations like Power U around the country. And I would say that I encourage folks to engage in existing organizations and developing those organizations to meet, like you said, okay, maybe it's not the flyer anymore. We're doing TikTok. But how do we evolve the community organization? Because that is the place that people practice governance that then Mm. gives us a rise and an interest to who's on our school board, to who is our house delegate, to who is our county or city or town commission and how they operate. That is where the interest in those things come from because that's the focus oftentimes in those organizations to win the victories that they win to begin to build and understand governance. And I think that's critical. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great advice. What do you think are some of the key principles you would share with someone who's thinking about becoming an organizer? Things to keep in mind, personality traits, like, like what, what are some of the call outs that you would share? The first thing I would say is the buyer beware that you have to be some huge extrovert to uh, be a community organizer. What you need is curiosity. Mm. Your interest in other people and other people's lives and other people's well-being is a driving force. If you don't have that level of curiosity, you will not enjoy the work. I would also say that the cooperation, um, it's critical to be able to learn how to work as a team and to be able to be able to coordinate in action so that cooperation generates the ability to make things happen. And I think courageous. It's yeah. its a little nerve-wracking. And I remember one of my campaigns, it was like being open to being taught by other people. And I was on a campaign uh, organizing a nursing home and we lost. Mm. And so I had my car and I drove from South Florida at the time I was living in DC, drove all the way there, never got out of the car. I got home and I was just devastated. I was like, I've ruined these people's lives. They've lost the union vote. What are we going to do? Oh my God. I just, I was terrified. Right. And my coworker who was this older person who was training me looked at me and was like, for real? (laughs) Yeah. He was like, Girl, look, these are grown people. They make the decisions they want to make. You did not make anyone do anything. You shared information and that's what happened. So it was a really good, important lesson that we're not making anyone do anything, that we're out Mm -hmm. here offering the best that we have and guiding people in what we know. And they're adults. They will make the choices that they feel they need to make. Yeah, no, that that's excellent. If we're going to up-level this, and it's always tricky to pick one thing, but it, it's a forcing function for clarity of thought. If there was one metric that we would use to objectively measure and track our collective progress in fighting you know, economic and racial inequality, what, what's the metric you would track? The well-being of black and brown women and children. What's the unit of measure for well-being? Health education, and I would say safety. That's great. So education, health, and safety. And then do you think the correct data sets and collection processes are in place today for that, that we can just track those as we're doing these other activities, or does that need work as well? No, it exists. We choose to ignore it. Hmm. We look at statistics all the time and we're like, these children, you know, have XYZ education at this age. Here's who they are. And people are like, and whatever, the school system is still built on the millage of the housing sales in that area. So too bad that there's not enough money for you to get a better education. Oh, well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's back to that point of uh, who's in our society. As we wrap up, let's give folks listening some homework. What's the action you would advise people to take today who want to create a more equitable world? I would say that you have a great amount of choice of some organizations to plug into in any kind of way, whether that is volunteering to make phone calls, volunteering to use your skill set, whatever that might be, towards the development of that organization. 
And if that is not possible based on whatever, to donate some money. And $5 is a respectable donation. Don't, don't give up on yourself. Take action. Well, Denise, this has been fantastic. I mean, I always learn something in these types of conversations and you've given me a ton to think about. So thank you again for joining us and sharing your story. All right. Thank you, LaShawn. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And next time I want to interview you. Ah, that sounds fun. Before I let you go, where can our listeners find out more about you or any of the projects that you're working on? At boldorganizing.org. For everyone out there listening, thanks for hanging out with us today. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a great review on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas on how we can improve the show or suggestions for a future guest, please email us at hello at truevoice.com. Special thanks to my show producer, Brian, for pulling everything together. That was great. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.